The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, pretty much everything the Buddha taught was directed towards what he saw as the fundamental problem of humanity, that of why do we suffer? And not just suffering in the large, but also suffering in the small ways that we suffer all day long. I mean, we might not call it suffering, but we might call it struggle or dissatisfaction or uneasiness. And so the the teachings of the Buddha he, he his big question was why do we why do we suffer what's the what's the kind of underlying cause of that suffering and his um, exploration of that question he came up with an understanding that the suffering that we experience not the unpleasantness that we experience because there's unpleasant experience unpleasant physical experience in particular Unpleasant experience um, is not the same as suffering. Um, in his own exploration of this, he discovered that unpleasant experience could simply be unpleasant experience, and there wouldn't be any particular um, struggle around it. It could just be, uh, this is the way it is. The mind could be at ease around that. So we're not talking about unpleasant experience here. We're talking about the way we struggle with experience. Um, what is given, and the way we react to it. And so he, he came to this understanding that this reactivity, that the why, the why we suffer is in, is in our own mental patterns and habits. In particular, they are kind of rooted in wanting things to be other than they are. Kind of a craving for either satisfaction of some wish or uh, a craving to get rid of something that we don't like in our environment. And so everything that he taught was kind of looking at, you know, first of all, is it possible to end this kind of suffering? And he discovered for himself, yes, it is. And then in his exploration of that, he, he found and taught a path that will help us to understand what he understood. And the, the Noble Eightfold Path. And this path is divided into three sections, a section on wisdom, a section on ethics, and a section on um, mental cultivation. The section on wisdom is both, um, it's comprised of the aspects of wise understanding and wise intention. And that aspect of the Eightfold Path is both the kind of the uh, the information that we need in order to begin to orient our um, our lives away from the patterns and habits that have been causing us so much stress, so much suffering. So it's a, it's a kind of it's kind of a reorientation in our minds about about um, how how do we want to engage in the world. And one of the fundamental aspects of that wisdom is that we begin to understand and look at what is it that leads us towards this kind of struggle and what leads us away from this struggle. The, 
aspect of ethical conduct, the aspect of um, mental cultivation are kind of addressing the ways that our activities of body, speech, and mind will lead us in the direction of suffering. And how can we, again, begin to kind of steer this battleship? <laughs> it's, it's kind of all in uh, our actions that cause harm, that cause suffering, are all based in these kind of misunderstandings of what, what it is that will, we think will actually make us happy. And so the, the, the kind of the reorientation of the first aspect of the Eightfold Path is really fundamental. It's really important to begin to understand what it is that leads us away from suffering, what it is that takes us towards suffering. So that wisdom aspect of the Eightfold Path is, there's an understanding of it as being the the kind of the teachings, the reorientation of our minds that begins to direct us towards behaving, acting, um, cultivating our minds in different ways. But it's also understood to be actually what we understand. You know, that, that the initial understanding that, okay, there are certain actions when rooted in um, greed, aversion, and delusion lead us towards suffering. If if our actions of body, of speech, of mind are rooted in non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, it tends to lead us away from this struggle, away from this um, dissatisfaction, this unease, the suffering. So these uh, qualities of greed, aversion, and delusion are qualities that arise in our mind and generally they arise out of habit you know that we've cultivated habitually cultivated patterns of wanting to get things that we like of wanting to get rid of things that we don't like of being um, confused of being disconnected from experience and these uh, these these qualities in our mind can lead us to behaviors of body of speech that are, are harmful both for ourselves and for others. And so this is the second aspect of the Eightfold Path addresses, is meant to address that level of um, kind of acting out of these habits in our mind of greed, aversion, and delusion. And then the, um, these, you know, so for instance, you know, we might out of greed act unethically and uh, take something that's not ours. We might act unethically out of aversion, um, speaking unskillfully to somebody who that we're angry with. Now the, the aspects of greed and aversion so therefore can have kind of outward manifestations, which is what this ethical aspect of the Eightfold Path is designed to address. But they can also be, I mean, we can have greed in our minds and not act unethically, but still be acting on greed. You know, that, um, um, oh, you know, that, that's what I really, that thing, that's what I really need in order to be happy. We can, you know, kind of have this misconstrued idea about where happiness comes from. And think that getting what we want is kind of the 
the direction towards being happy. Now this is not an individual kind of thing. This is kind of imbued in our human nature in a way. Um, Back, you know, I think evolutionarily we are kind of designed in a way to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. And that... um, um, that becomes our whole mode of operating f- to find happiness. Maximize the pleasure, minimize the pain. And it's, you know, it's a strategy that um, produces some amount of happiness, but it's, you know, it, it basically um, reinforces these patterns of greed and aversion so while there is some kind of happiness that results from getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, ultimately we are reinforcing these qualities of greed and aversion in our minds. And so while the, the notion of getting what we want um, as, a, as a way to happiness, of kind of consuming um, as a way towards happiness, um, it satisfies a certain level of happiness. You know, it satisfies a, the, a certain level of material sense pleasure. But I think that a lot, of, a lot of us are actually here because we know that, you know, that kind of material satisfaction doesn't go very far. You know, that we have a sense of, you know, what we're really wanting is, a, is well-being, and we, you know, it's kind of like we consume and think that well-being can be found by getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want. But the Buddha actually found a different path to well-being, a, a deeper kind of well-being that comes from coming into alignment with things as they are and not uh, resisting against them or holding on to them. And so this is where he began to understand that greed and aversion in particular they, they contribute to our dissatisfaction, our suffering, our stress, our unease. So that, um, that kind of beginning to work with mental practices to help us uproot those qualities in our mind will lead to uh, the, kind of the happiness of well-being. And in the um, practices, following those practices we come to understand directly for ourselves the wisdom that these qualities of greed, aversion, and delusion create suffering for us. So that it's no longer uh, wisdom that is accepted and uh, kind of reflected on, taken in and reflected on, but it becomes our own. So the wisdom aspect aspect of the Eightfold Path is kind of both the beginning and the end of this path. That at the beginning it serves as a kind of a guide or a direction for us. And at the end it's it's an understanding. It's the way we're living. We, We wouldn't even consider living in another way. We wouldn't consider acting out of greed or aversion because it's so deeply understood how intertwined that is with our lack of well-being. So this, um, this middle aspect of the Eightfold Path, um, the ethical aspect, is addressing the 
the area of our actions of body and speech. And this aspect is comprised of wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. Um, And so uh, I've been talking, I talked last time about some aspects of wise action. And I didn't quite finish that discussion, so I thought I'd continue on that topic today. So there's a couple of key pieces that I want to just bring in around ethics in general. Um, and I think it's, it's helpful to just reinforce this over and over and over again. Um, you know, Based on this understanding that it is the underlying mental um, skew that we you know, think that having what we want, getting rid, rid of what we don't want is what brings us happiness that those qualities of greed, aversion, and delusion are kind of operating in our minds. And it's out of those um, qualities that we are motivated to behave unethically. So, as I said a few minutes ago, you know, if we're angry at someone, we might be motivated to speak unskillfully. Um, the the aspect of wise speech is you know refraining from false speech refraining from harsh speech refraining from divisive speech refraining from idle chatter and so we we might out of this unskillful motivation be um, impelled to speak harshly or divisively so the underlying intention behind our actions is actually the piece that the Buddha was mostly pointing to with respect to ethical conduct. It's this this quality of greed, aversion, or delusion in the mind that is accompanying the actions that the Buddha said, look, this is the, this is the most important pl- place to pay attention to. And besides the, um, you know, looking at what he laid out in terms of the ethical conduct. He said, in most cases, if you're going to be engaging in these activities intentionally, if you're going to be engaging in wrong speech intentionally, if you're going to be engaging in it in harsh speech, divisive speech, um, false speech intentionally, then greed or aversion are probably present. If you're going to engage in idle chatter intentionally, delusion is probably present. Likewise with uh, wise action. The teaching on wise action is about refraining from certain actions, refraining from killing living beings, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. And he said if you're going to engage in these actions intentionally, then there is probably some greed, aversion, delusion at, at its root. And so be careful. If you find yourself intentionally, you know, reaching up to kill an insect, there's probably some aversion in your mind. And it is this aversion that is the, the peace that the Buddha is mostly pointing to. But that's what we need to, um, to explore. And a good way with respect to actions to explore this is to refrain from actions that are motivated out of greed, aversion, and delusion. 
in particular unethical actions that are motivated out of greed, aversion, and delusion. Because these unethical actions in particular are ones that tend to not only cause harm for ourselves through cultivating these unwholesome qualities in our mind, but they harm others as well. And so the, the whole teaching on ethical conduct is one around non-harming, looking at do our actions cause harm for others, for ourselves. And, and using that kind of as a, a wake-up call, you know, look out, this is, you know, this is heading me in a direction that will not ultimately be for my well-being. And that's the, that's the goal here. The goal isn't to just blindly you know, follow these rules and say, oh, not supposed to do that, not supposed to do that, not supposed to do that. But this is a kind of a way to train and cultivate an understanding of the forces that would impel us to do those things. That's where the benefit comes. That's where the benefit comes in our minds to begin to turn towards that aversion as we reach up to, to smack that mosquito. You know, it's like... Okay, you know, there's there's hostility in my heart here as I'm doing this. You know, what, can I can I refrain from following through on that and instead turn to understand this hostility itself? We're not asked to somehow suppress that hostility. We're asked to turn to understand it, look at it, explore it, understand what's 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 underneath it. So this aspect of intention and looking at the qualities associated with our actions is kind of one of the keys with respect to ethical conduct. Another piece that I think is really important in terms of looking at ethical conduct as a whole is um, is that there's... You know, it's not, it's not like cut and dried. Um, you know, if you do this unethical thing, then this is what's going to happen to you. It's, um, there was actually that kind of a teaching at the time of the Buddha. You know, something like, you know, if you murder somebody, then you will go to hell. That kind of, that kind of cut and dried teaching. And the Buddha saw this possibility for essentially redemption. That um, when we change our minds, turn our minds towards this inclination to harm, and rather than following through on that inclination, but to, to observe it, if we, if we um, turn our minds in that way, then there's the possibility that we can become have this sense of well-being. We can become happy. There's even a story, I mentioned this last week, in, in the uh, suttas about a mass murderer who had murdered 999 people. And when he met the Buddha, he had a turning of his mind and began to practice meditation. And he really deeply liberated his heart and mind. He is said that he became fully awakened, fully free of greed, aversion, and delusion. So that possibility for redemption exists in this very life. So the, the notion of um, 
you know, what are the ramifications of these actions is not one that we can really um, answer in a way. Uh, it depends, I think, is you know, kind of what the Buddha would say. Um, it depends on what the whole course of your history has been like. How have you engaged in the past? There's a, an analogy he uses about, I mentioned this last week as well, about um, taking some salt. You know, if you take a teaspoon of salt and drop it into a glass of water and stir it up and try to drink that water, it's going to be pretty undrinkable. Um, but if you take that same teaspoon of water and put it into a large body of pure water and then take a glass out of it, you're not going to notice it. And so he said, similarly, for some person, a, a minor unwholesome action will lead them straight to deep suffering. For another person, a minor unwholesome action will barely be noticed. Now, the, the, the teaching around this, though, is, is that... Um, not that, you know, that person that has that pure, large body of purity and then there's a small, unwholesome action in there. Um, it's not that there's not some reverberations around that unwholesome action. There will be. There may be, it may be that, you know, there are ripples in the mind of, oh, shouldn't have done that, you know, and, and some feelings of... of um, Regret, some feelings of, you know, sorrow that we've caused harm to another. Those kind, those are actually some wholesome things. Um, But there's going to be some ripple effects from having done that unwholesome action. So this, um, the teaching in terms of this, this ethical component is. You know, it's not, it's not about judgment. It's not about saying, you know, that's wrong and that's right. It's more, it's more about the reverberation in our hearts and minds after taking an action, making an action that is unskillful there will be reverberation in our hearts and minds when we've done something unskillful, when we've caused harm. And that's what the Buddha is asking us to explore and what he's also hoping to help us avoid, those reverberations as a result of unwholesome actions, by suggesting that we avoid these actions. So in terms of um, wise Action. Last week I talked quite a bit about refraining from killing. And at the end of that conversation, you know, there are kind of two main questions. Or, you know, one question comes up around, well, so is it, is it ever justified, you know, to kill, um, you know, somebody, you know, who's really um, evil? You know, is there, is, is it, isn't, isn't that justified? And the response is, is like justify, and I said, again, I said this last week, but justification is a, um, is a notion of society. 
And the Buddha is not so interested in whether something's justifying, justified or not. He's interested in does it cause suffering. And so the the um, you know the the question about you know so you kill somebody that is very evil you know you know even you know perhaps somebody who's coming to kill you it's killing in self defense. The um, the teaching is, isn't about is it justified or not. It's about recognizing that there will be an impact of that action. You know, that there will be. You know, I could just imagine, you know, if I had to kill somebody in self-defense, how many times I might relive that, wishing there was some other way. Would there be some other way that I could have done that? This is agitation in the mind. Pain in the heart around this. So that's what the Buddha is interested in, is looking at that aspect. In this teaching on refraining from killing, um, there's these, um, you know, the notions of, there's kind of gradations of what could be understood as this rebound effect on our hearts and minds. Um, And the... um, you know, the, there's an understanding that it's more ethically serious to kill someone who's very pure, you know, to kill like a Gandhi, versus killing someone who's very, uh, you know, evil like Osama bin Laden. So that there's more a karmic um, rebound when the killing, when when we kill somebody that is very wholesome. And um, also motivation impacts that, that rebound. You know, if you have been premeditating a, a murder for weeks and weeks, there's a lot of unwholesome activity that's going on in your mind in those weeks leading up to that. So it's kind of compounding this rebound effect. Whereas if it's an unpremeditated murder, you know, somebody's coming at you with a knife and, you know, you, you strike out and... Um, and kill them. You know that's not that, that's not got weeks and weeks of that premeditation that that adds to that. So there's there's understood to be what might be called mitigating factors, but still there is no matter what. The Buddha said, no matter what the mitigating factors, there will be this kind of rebound on our hearts. And so this is this is why he encouraged us to refrain from these actions. So that's, a, that's one aspect, that, that kind of a question that often comes up around this aspect of the teaching. Another one that came up is, is around vegetarianism. Um, and, you know, this is, a, this is an interesting question. Um, I didn't have time to answer this question last week, so I thought I'd talk about it today. Um, you know, the Buddha was not a vegetarian. Uh, there are whole, you know, Buddhist countries, you know, the, the Burma, where the majority of Buddhists are not vegetarian. Um, the Tibet, in Tibet also, I think most of the Tibetans are not vegetarian. And so vegetarianism itself is not necessarily part of the Buddhist mm, culture, I guess we could say. Um, you know, there's some reasons for this. And just to say this was controversial at the time of the Buddha also. 
So, you know, I want to put that out there. This is, not, this is a controversy that's been raging for 2,500 years. It's not just here in our culture. In fact, at the time of the Buddha, there was a kind of a, a schism. Have you heard about the Buddha's uh, cousin Devadatta? He was, um, he was the... Um, he was not a good guy, you know. He's kind of the, he's kind of the, the evil twin or something, <laughs> you know, in, at the time of the Buddha. And he was, he was, um, you know, trying to figure out how to break the the Buddha's um, sangha apart, or he was trying to figure out how he could get the power so that he could be the leader of the sangha, or he was trying to figure out how to kill the Buddha. So he was, you know, he was not such a good guy. Um, and one of his his schemes was to bring up this issue around vegetarianism and to say, look, you know, first of all, he tried to convince the Buddha that uh, the Sangha should not eat meat. And the Buddha said, the way we are supported is by the offerings of lay people. And if we do not accept what they offer and eat it, um, we're, you know, we're, we're kind of limiting the possibility for people to experience the joy of giving. So he refused to, to basically put out the word, look, my monks are vegetarian, so don't serve us meat. Basically he's saying, you know, whatever you're eating, you're, you can offer us. He did give a caveat, though. He said... Um, if you know that the family that you're eating with has killed meat, killed an animal, explicitly for you, you should not eat that. That, that you would partake of the uh, unwholesomeness of that action if you know that that animal was killed explicitly to serve you. So that was a caveat that he gave. So, um, so the Buddha didn't for his sangha, um, demand vegetarianism. He didn't demand that the people supporting them eat vegetarian. He did, however, say that uh, engaging in livelihood, and we'll talk about this some more, um, maybe next week, um, engaging in livelihood that either kills animals or trades in animals for killing is not a good livelihood for someone who wants to purify their heart and mind. So, you know, there's that that kind of message that if you would like to be um, purifying your heart and mind, you should refrain from killing. You should refrain from um, trading in animals or being a butcher. So there's that message also. So where does this leave us in our day and age? Um, you know, the, the, we understand this notion of supply and demand. Um, and the more, I mean, we obviously, you know, when you go to a supermarket, the, the meat that's there is not um, been killed explicitly for you. So, you know, from that standpoint, it's not, you know, it's not that you have encouraged somebody to kill directly. So that, you know, part of this um, 
understanding is that what's in your mind as, uh, as you act. Um, however, we do know that if we ate less meat, fewer animals would be killed because of supply and demand. So, you know, it's a question. But it's a question, I think, for each of us to explore. There is no answer that the teachings of the Buddha give us on this one. So to look at it for yourself. I mean, you know, in Tibet, for instance, um, I think that, I think I, I heard this about the Dalai Lama, um, that he refrains from eating meat every other day. Um, and, you know, if you think about what Tibet is like, you know, there's hardly any arable land. And essentially, you know, the way that they um, get their nourishment is by, you know, the grazing animals that range far and wide. They get the little tufts of grass that are growing scattered through the barren land. And then they bring it back to the communities where, you know, they bring that nourishment back to the communities in the form of their bodies. And that's how the people of Tibet get nourished, that they are not vegetarians. It it would almost be impossible to be a vegetarian in the land of Tibet uh, without, you know, some kind of import of technology or um, crops, something like that. So, you know, the... The Tibetan people have bodies, I think, that have a sense, in a sense, kind of are are more um, served by eating meat. So the Dalai Lama, in recognizing, you know, okay, you know, this is this is something that contributes to the killing of animals. He renounces eating meat every other day. So that's how he has addressed this issue. Himself, so uh, you know this is there's no cut and dried answer here. Some people do come to the sense of feeling like any time they're eating meat, it is participating in the killing of beings, and they refrain. They just have decided that's not that's not what I want to do. Others, um, like myself, I do eat meat. I don't tend to eat much red meat. I'll eat I'll eat red meat on rare occasions. Um, I, I eat mostly fish and chicken, and I don't even eat much of that. I mean, mostly, you know, I eat a lot of beans and rice. <laughs> you know, so it's, it, for me, there's a kind of a... Um, I try to be a, a low consumer of meat. So it's, it's, it's an exploration for each of us to, to look at. So um, I want to open it up for comments or questions at this point and see... There's anything more, yeah, Bill. I was uh, reading part of one of Jane Goodall's books, and you know she spent a lot of time observing our closest relatives in the animal kingdom, chimpanzees, and uh, she was surprised at first when she saw them catching and eating uh, rodents and monkeys. And after long observation, she concluded that meat was about 5% of their diet. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this helps to explain to me why uh, I have met some people who tried very hard 
for an extended period of time to be vegetarian and really felt like they had to give it up and go back to eating meat. Um, and, you know, we're animals, and, <laughs> and animals, a lot of animals do that. So uh, maybe we shouldn't try to deny our biology. But, but in the olden days, when you caught an animal and ate it, it at least, had at least lived free and yeah. wild. yeah. And had been as happy as an animal could be up until the time it was caught. And I think for humans to go to the grocery store and buy meat that's been raised in feedlots or battery cages and, you know, horrible conditions and they're, they're miserable to the point of insanity almost their whole lives is not a, a kind of economy that I think we can justify engaging in. No, I, I I I agree, and I you know that's that's part of my uh, um, condi- you know what is it the the conditions that lead to my own personal choices um, is thinking about just that. So um, yeah, I mean that's that's an additional question. I mean the scale on which we raise food in this culture has led to some horrible horrible practices. And uh, yeah, I mean, I. I so it, it has become almost impossible to eat ethically, but but it's not impossible yet. I, th- I think we can do it with with enough effort. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. I'm glad you talked about this. This is something I've been wondering about for quite some time, um, because I've looked into it. And nutritionally, it's really hard as a vegetarian to actually get everything that you need. You can do it, but. Um, uh, you know, so that's that's something to take into consideration. We probably were meant to eat some amount of these things. I try really hard to buy or, if organic meat and or kosher meat because I know that the animal is treated properly. Um, but I also try to eat not so much of it. I think that's yeah. really the key. Just to have a little and, and you know things that don't damage the animal, like milk and eggs, um, also provide a lot. Um, so that's kind of how I've deal with that. Just try not to have too much of it and and buy the right sources. I really, you know, like the fact that, I mean, this is, this is the kind of question that the Buddha is asking us to explore, you know, how do we engage in living? You know, so this is beautiful that you're, you know, contemplating this and, um, you know, thinking about, thinking about how your choices impact the wider world. So this is, this is, you know, this is the kind of exploration he asks us to do. Not to just, you know, say, you know, either blindly say, yes, I'm going to be vegetarian, or no, I'm not, but to kind of look at where are our choices coming from and what are the impacts of those choices. Anyone else have any... I could continue with refraining from taking what's not given. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is my exploration of a Dharma talk that's just going to wander until I'm done. <laughs> um, last week I decided, rather than trying to finish the section on wise action, I would just stop and let, let the discussion happen. So that's as far as we got. So... Um, 
refraining from taking what's not given. Again, the a key here has to do with the, um, the intention behind this action. So if you accidentally take something that's not yours, and this is, this is an, uh, there's, there's several aspects to this precept, we can say. It's a, a precept training guideline um, that um, there is the intention to deprive someone of their um, property, essentially. The, the commentarial definition says appropriation with thievish intent. And that the thing taken must belong to somebody or be perceived as uh, belonging to somebody. So that, you know, taking things, so taking what is not given um, is taking things that belong to others that have not been given. So, you know, if you're, it's hard to find a place where there's, you know, absolutely no owner to anything in this country at this point. (laughs) But, you know, you might imagine, um, you know, picking up a shell on the beach or something, you know, that, that that shell doesn't particularly belong, assuming there's no being in the shell. You know, that shell doesn't belong to anybody in particular. There are sections of the California coast where they kind of state a kind of an appropriation of, you know, this is a preserve, please don't take anything. You know, so that there, there are places where it's explicitly stated, you know, please don't do that. So, you know, to, to, to recognize um, when we are taking what is not offered, what is not given. Um, so again, this volition, the intention is important. If, you're ta- if you take something and don't know it belongs to another, or accidentally take something, like, you know, um, you know, at work, for instance, if you walk into somebody's office and pick up a pen and then forget to put it down. I mean, there's some delusion at work there, but, you know, it's not the intention to steal, if you if you you know walk out of the office with that pen, the intention is not to steal. And hopefully, if you you know discover, oh, I walked out of the office with that person's pen, you know, you'll walk in and give it back to them. Um, so that that kind of taking, when there's not that intention to take, you know, if you if you just think about the difference in the mind, you know, if you if you um, you know are walking into somebody's office looking for what can you take from them. You know, what can I have that's theirs? What, you know, they have that great thing. I really want that. If you're walking into their office thinking about that, you know, with that kind of greediness in mind, there's a different rebound effect on our system than there is if you just happen to walk out with something. So that's an important aspect of this, uh, of understanding this precept. And it kind of, you know... Um, there are also gradations to this one, like there are with the refraining from, from killing. Um, so, more ethically inappropriate to take things of high value. Um, more ethically inappropriate to take things from people who are very um, virtuous. So, the, the, the teaching here also includes... Um, you know, there's some subtleties that we can contemplate. Like, you know, 
taking things from work that are not offered, you know, the, you know, taking paper, taking pens, taking office supplies home to use at home for non-work purposes. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, some appropriation there with the intention to use for uh, not a purpose that it has been offered for. So that's, you know, that's a, that's a kind of a subtlety to look, are you, are you using things inappropriately? It's also understood, um, that withholding from others what is rightfully theirs is a form of taking what is not offered. So, for instance, and the example is given around um, not, not compensating employees appropriately. You know, that kind of paying them less than minimum wage or whatever, that that, that is a form of taking what is not offered. So as with the other um, areas of ethical conduct, each aspect of ethical conduct cultivates a wholesome quality as well. So refraining from killing cultivates a quality of compassion, begins to cultivate the open-heartedness. So, you know, that as you refrain from acting on those unwholesome impulses, it begins to open our heart and connect us to others. I think that actually that's a big piece of this ethical uh, section of the path too, that it begins to connect us to others through wholesome action. And those uh, wholesome actions then begin to rebound on our mind positively as opposed to negatively. So this, you know, this works to our favor. We, we begin to have a sense of more well-being and open-hearted connection with others as we engage ethically. So refraining from killing is said to cultivate this quality of compassion. Refraining from taking what's not given is said to cultivate um, honesty and contentment. So honesty, the honesty aspect is, is kind of respect. You know, it, it's respect for the property of others. The contentment aspect is this aspect of being kind of satisfied with what we, what we have, you know, not needing to take other things. And this, this is, is really where, you know, there's the, the two aspect of this, that, that the, the contentment comes from, you know, kind of just being satisfied with what we already have. But there's, it's deeper than just, you know, being satisfied with the material goods. It's more of a sense of the contentment arising from well-being. And that, you know, the whole notion actually of consumption, um, if, we, if we turn to, to think about how is this consumption serving me? Is it serving simply to satisfy some wish for something pleasant? Or is it serving to support my well-being? So, you know, eating, for example, we can, we can eat simply for the pleasure of it, or we can eat also acknowledging that this is supporting the possibility of well-being. So consuming, consuming, you know, the, the way we consume in this culture 
uh, and the way we're encouraged to consume in this culture is so much about satisfying that wish for material goods. And this can, can kind of go overboard in uh, acting on that greed in unethical ways. But even that, you know, just going overboard in, even that just that consuming, satisfying these desires of sense pleasure. Oh, I want that device. I want that, you know, I want a new iPad. I want a new Prius. I want, you know, a new computer. I want a really nice shawl. I want, you know, whatever we want. If if that's how we're trying to satisfy ourselves, you know, we're really missing out on the deeper aspect of well-being. That... that um, so to beginning to explore, you know, what is it that we really need and what is it that's beneficial for our well-being? It, it kind of turns consumption on its head in a way to think about this, to include this question of am what I, is what I'm consuming supporting my well-being? And if we ask this question with respect to taking what's not given, we'll see that, you know, any form of taking what's not given, taking something with thievish intent, does not support our well-being because there will be this rebound effect. This rebound effect of, you know, thinking about, oh, I need to be careful that that person doesn't see that thing in my office or whatever, you know, that, that there's this, you know, agitation of mind, perhaps revisiting the situation a lot, thinking, you know, oh, that wasn't so good. There are people that seem to have a very strong delusion um, where they just do not uh, feel that rebound. But it doesn't mean that that rebound is not happening. It's just that there's like such a cloud in front of their eyes that, um, that they can't feel it or see it. So we'll continue next week. (laughs) Thank you.